Hi, Jens here. Are you interested in innovation? This might be something for you too. Every Friday, I share the latest innovation articles, ideas, videos, books, podcasts, and more that I discovered during the week in my newsletter, Connect the Dots. If you subscribe, you will receive an email into your inbox every Friday. You can't find the newsletter anywhere else, so you have to subscribe if you want to receive it. Head over to jensheitland.com, scroll to the bottom of the page and sign up. But now, let's get started with the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Jens Heitland Show where I connect the dots of innovation and entrepreneurship. My name is Jens Heitland and welcome to the show. Today's guest is grown up in New Zealand and moved to Germany, where he founded the company Testify. Testify offers cutting-edge test automation tools and services to massively speed up the process of large-scale software delivery in enterprise applications. Please welcome to the show, Dan Burns. How are you doing? Great, thank you, Jens. Happy to be on the show. It's great to have you. Great to have someone else in Germany. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Although, you know, in this day and age with the whole corona thing, it doesn't really matter anymore, does it? You know? Yeah, so, true. Uh, you could be around the corner and we would still do a Zoom call. Indeed, indeed. It's somehow surreal. On the, on the upside, you know, the world's become a flatter place, right? So it doesn't matter if we're now dealing with customers uh, anywhere, basically. So. Yeah. Before we go into Testify and innovation topics, give us a little bit of understanding who you are and what your story is. So um, as you pointed out, I'm from New Zealand originally. I studied, I did my studies back in New Zealand. I did three degrees, law, politics, and computer science. While I was studying, I also was a competitive kickboxer for about four or five years back in New Zealand. And one of my claims to fame, and let's say it's the misused glory from my past, was that um, in 2004, I was the New Zealand Super Light Heavyweight Kickboxing Champion. So it was something that was uh, I'm super proud of, and it's a big part of my identity as well. Short, funnily enough, everyone that fights uh, gets a stable name or a nickname. My surname being Burns, my coach thought it was hilarious that he called me uh, Dan Third Degree Burns. This was, of course, made even more funny by the fact that I was studying three degrees at the same time. So it was the, the double entendre there. Anyway, it's an old glory, which I still cash on. In 2004, I left New Zealand. And I came to first to the UK. My wife, then girlfriend, is from Germany. So we initially went to, the, uh, to London together. And I spent a couple of years working for a consultancy in London that was focused on testing. That was kind of the start of the whole Testify story. I um, didn't really want to get into testing because it's then, and as it is kind of now, it was the forgotten child of IT. But I said, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to make sure that I'm the best that I can be. You know, So I focused a lot on agile software development and automation and so forth. I had a a kind of a formative project in 2005 with the team from ThoughtWorks, who are thought leaders in this whole agile space. I had a lot of experiences around this. I worked with this consultancy for nearly two years, and then I basically spent from 2000, mid-2006 through until when I started Testify, kind of consulting throughout Europe. So I worked, my first project was in Russia. In Moscow. I had the option of the Royal Bank of Scotland, literally 200 meters down the road from where I lived, or Moscow. And so 
of course, I went for Moscow because why not, you know? Yeah, I mean, during that time, I saw a lot. I, I worked on between, I guess, around 25 different enterprise projects, you know, varying shapes and sizes. In 2008 to 2009, I took a year out and I did an MBA at the Unternehmertum, which was focused on innovation and entrepreneurship, because it was clear to me then I was super interested in this whole topic of entrepreneurship and innovation, and I wanted to tie it back in somehow to the path that I was treading. Shortly after the, the MBA, finished. My first child was born, my first daughter. So I have three girls. So she was born in 2010. Then it became a bit more pressing that I get some more money coming in. So I went back to freelancing. <laughs> the reality of, of fatherhood sunk in and we had to be a little bit more serious about it. In 2011, I had what, what I would call the inception moment for Testify. And this was a, a big project with a large automotive manufacturer here in Munich. Mm -hmm. Where we had a like a large project, which was the very first project that this company had done in the space of agile software delivery, and they asked me to put together a um, an agile testing strategy, which I did with eagerly, and I delivered a a seventy page handbook because that's how you do things these big companies very agile, and yeah. uh, they turned around and told me, stop, Dan, we don't see the need for test automation on this project, you know. I couldn't believe it. There was two, more than 200 developers running Scrum of Scrums. You know, we had all of this desire and this modern kind of approach to development and innovation and so forth. But, you know, there was fundamentally a whole lot of this, these infrastructure problems weren't being addressed. You know, there was no coordination. There was no coherence. There was no overriding concept for how, you know, for the mechanics of delivering the innovation mm -hmm. or, the, or the software. So at that point, that was the time when I really decided, okay, you know, there's something that's got to be done and I'm going to do something about it. And that, that was basically the point where I decided, okay, that's this testify story needs to come to life. So, yes, yeah, so I, I continued to uh, freelance for another few years. Then in 2015, I came back to this manufacturer. I met my business partner there and we started working together on a project. And after a little while, we decided to, um, to set up testify. We spent the first two, well, one and a half to two years kind of working on Testify as a side project. So we started in 2017. Testify just became four years old just the other day, in fact. So the 17th of March, our fourth birthday. Yeah, I mean, it was, of course, a cool and exciting period to go through this, you know. And in 2019, we decided, okay, let's make Testify a full-time gig, right? And so from 2019, we were, were all in on Testify. And, you know, the company grew really fast. So at the start of 2019, there was two of us. We got uh, our first employee. He joined properly in February. By the end of 2019, we had six people in the team. By the end of 2020, we had 18 people in the team. We've now got around 30 people in the team at the moment. You know, it's moving forward. And that's where we, that's, you know, in a very short, uh, in a nutshell, that's kind of my story and, and what brought us to here now with Testify and my chat with you. Yeah. So Great. Interesting story. So if we dig a little bit into the entrepreneurial way of thinking, what was the decision point, the, the thing that get, get you towards, hey, let's build this as a business. Let's go all in 100%. What, what was the key thing for you? Yeah, sure. I mean, there were a lot of little things. These things culminated. I mean, I guess perhaps you could say it started to a certain extent with the MBA that I did. So <laughs> doing an MBA is not necessarily the path to innovation. The MBA that I did was focused on innovation and, and entrepreneurship. It's obviously a very sexy and in topic at the mm -hmm. moment. But, you know, just with every other MBA or just as with every other MBA, it's not really going to give you a deep insight into one particular topic, but it's going to give you an overview of a lot of things. So if I'm being honest, the MBA didn't really drive me. 
down this path of entrepreneurship, but it did give me kind of prime me to be aware or to be looking for these opportunities, you know? Mm-hmm. And like I said, it was something that I was I had always been interested in. One of my other big, let's say, problems with my career or my was that I that I didn't really have a, a clear red line through my CV. You know, I had so many different interests and so many different aspects. I, you know, I had the strong, I mean, three, four degrees. I had uh, the kickboxing. I had, on the one hand, a very strong technical background, but on the other hand, much more of a focus around people and communication, you know? Mm-hmm. So all of these things added up to being a general feeling of discontent with, let's say, a standard path. I had, obviously, a deep insight into testing and software delivery because I've been working in this industry since 2004. You know, so mm-hmm. it makes sense then to focus on, you know, something that you've got a deep insight into. And I guess one of the problems that I had was that I, I mean, I tried a couple of times with some people to implement some of the ideas that I had, but I lacked really, you know, like a super strong technical implementer. And, you know, to start off with, it's super difficult to find people that you can trust to work together with, you know, like I said, I tried a couple of times to make it happen and it, there just wasn't the same level of commitment. So I worked with my my partner Henning for nearly two years before we founded Testify. We were working together on the project, building up a, a feeling for how we could work together and you know what made sense and so forth. And then once we we founded Testify, first it became a vehicle for our freelancing work, and secondly, then we were able to focus on building up the concept on the side. And I really recently contributed to a blog post on sidepreneurship. You know, there's a lot of really good reasons for why not going all in from the start is a good approach. I mean, one of the things was as well is that I was, oh, I am a father. You know, I have three children. You know, it's not like I can go all in on a no risk, no fun kind of stuff, right? You know, I have to make sure that I've got income coming in, you know? So so this kind of sidepreneurship gave me the opportunity to iterate around their idea and finalize our concepts and come out with a concrete and coherent solution that we could bring to the market in a viable way. So we had our first project we got in 2018. And that allowed us to sort of just take these ideas and really apply them concretely to a customer, right? So in the end, the number one most important precondition for any any company is customers. That's the only thing that you need in order to start a business, right? So we already had our first customer. We had a a strong indication that we would close the second customer, which was Vodafone. And that was kind of enough of a signal for us to say, okay, well, you know, we don't know how this is going to work out, but there's enough legs here in this to, to really give it a go and to make it happen. You know, this level, this building up of confidence, you know, the slow but sure, the positive signs and everything like this, it looked really good. It was, of course, a long and cold winter once we finally did go all in, right? I'll be honest with you. It was super stressful. We had a lot of issues that we had to deal with. I mean, nothing can really prepare you for going all in on an entrepreneurial adventure, you know, really being totally self-sufficient and, you know, having to find customers and projects which feed you and not just you, but the rest of the team, because the team starts to grow quickly and they do their thing by turning up and working hard. And we have to do our thing by paying them. That's how it works. And this is scary, you know, and there were times when I wasn't sure how I was going to pay. I wasn't sure how we were going to pay us, how we were going to pay the the team. I always tried to pay the team first, but, you know, it was was by hook or by crook. I had to borrow money. I then paid the money back when I could, you know, we had to try and uh, make deals. We, of course, made compromises on what, how much, you know, we would get in order to get the projects out the door and so forth. And yeah. you know, just constantly selling the concept and the idea to everyone that we talked to, be they customers or employees or partners or whatever, you know. 
It is the um, proverbial roller coaster, right? Anyone that, that has any kind of innovation or entrepreneurial experience just has this total experience of going up and down and just battling through it, right? And uh, I can tell you. <laughs> That's just how it is. It's quite funny that you say, I have also started Slack. I was doing that next to my normal job when I was working as a consultant as well. And then building it up to the level that I was saying, it's like, hey, that, this is way more fun being on my own. And it's also like having customers, they're, they're paying enough that I will be able to survive from it for a while at least. And then that was for me a similar way where I then said, okay, all in. And then a couple of personal reasons came connected to that. We moved back to Germany and, and that was basically from that day on, I was 100%. Yeah. And it's a cool thing, right? You know, I mean, it's super stressy and super hard, right? But, you know, being in control of the, you know, taking control and taking ownership and being the one that dictates the path. I mean, this is an awesome thing. You know, I love it, right? Absolutely. And, uh, and I think, you know, once you've been kind of bitten by this bug, you know, this entrepreneurial bug or this innovation bug, you know, there's no going back to the way things were done before, right? I can't imagine working for someone in a company. I hardly can't, no, not really right now. No chance. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but let's let's go a little bit more into innovation. I mean, Testify for me is, is is innovation throughout. Already the name testing applies innovation for me as an external. So that's that's already very, very cool. But I know because we have talked a bit about it, it, it is really innovation topic. So before we dive into Testify and how you do innovative projects and so on, What is innovation for you as a person? Innovation is a very, very small percent about the idea and the concept and a very, very large percent about the hard work of making that idea happen. So innovation, you know, everyone's got ideas, right? You know, you walk down the street, the so-called graveyard is full of ideas, you know. Uh, everyone had these ideas which they took to the grave to them. What's the exception It's the people that take those ideas and just through relentless hard work and grind and grit and blood, sweat and tears, they take this idea and they make it happen. You know, And in the end, this is what innovation really is. Be that uh, as an entrepreneur setting up a company or as an entrepreneur inside an organization, changing things and making things happen. You know, yeah. It just requires an immense amount of determination and grit to, to overcome the challenges that come up inevitably in your way. So that generally speaking is what innovation means for me. When I think about innovation in my context, especially, so I'm obviously focused around the implementation of software projects, especially with this kind of agile and this lean mindset. Agile software delivery and kind of lean entrepreneurship concepts, you know, that they, they map hand in hand. You know, it's it's one step at a time. It's small incremental developments. It's taking hypotheses out and proving them and validating them and moving forward. But, you know, there's, there's kind of a transition point where you go from, okay, we've got an idea, let's just get something out there by hook or by crook, and to the, you know, the tipping point where you say, okay, now we've got something, let's commit, and let's take this and make this happen, right? In this idea phase, you've got to give yourself as many opportunities, you know, to try different ideas out and see what works and see what, you know, really sticks. But at some point in time, there has to be a selection process which goes on where you say, okay, now we're going to take this idea and we're going to push this further. In this case, once you've reached that point where you've got kind of an awareness that there's something to run with, you know, there's something that really has value, mm -hmm. then you've got to start laying down the foundations, which makes it easier for you to deliver that innovation. 
And this is what we're trying to do with Testify, mm-hmm. to basically create an underlining structure where we can validate the progress, you know, so we know with certainty what it is that we've got and that we have a clear concept of what's finished and what's working and how we can deliver this from the concept through into actually getting some feedback in the market as a product or mm-hmm. even satisfying our customers' requirements as quickly as possible. And what I see a lot with startups is that exactly this happens. You know, you get, you know, a couple, two, three guys who are really, guys or girls who are really smart and fired up and they've got a great idea and they get the first concept out the door and it works, you know, and they get positive feedback and everything like this. But then comes the next step. How do you sort of start to scale on this? How do you take it to the next level, right? And if you've just got one or two people working in the code base, for example, Everyone kind of knows what's going on, right? But as soon as it starts to get faster and, and, you know, you've got different requirements coming in from different customers, you've got to make sure that you're moving forward, but you're also moving forward on a secure foundation. And basically, this is what, what we tried to set up when we were thinking about Testify was basically to how to create a tool which enables or facilitates this kind of rapid software development in this kind of agile context with all this uncertainty that comes with this, you know? If you then work with large corporations, how could could I understand how how does it work? So let's say I'm working in a large organization and I'm interested in engaging with you. What are the steps? How would you approach my problems? So actually, we take a, an iterative approach anyway. Let's just say we have our conversations, right? And you think, okay, it sounds good and it sounds interesting, right? I can give you a pitch. I can show you some diagrams. We can discuss the ROI and all that kind of stuff. And let's say it all adds up. Mm. But the reality is until you see those results in your hand, it means nothing. Mm. So the first step is as quickly as possible to move from talk to actually delivery. So mm. what we try and do is we, um, the first phase is a small proof of concept, let's say. And typically, this is a four-week engagement where we basically, we come in, we bind our tools into the infrastructure of the target system, the task management, the test management, the build pipeline, or the orchestration tool, um, the environment, et cetera, et cetera. You know, mm-hmm. we bind all of this in, and then we deliver some concrete examples of test cases using the systems and the structures that we've got, right? And then we stop talking about stuff, and we start showing stuff, Right. This is always the best way to build a rapport because now we're dealing with something that's in the context. It's it's a concept, you know, that, that now has concrete application, right? And during that time when we're doing this initial uh, POC, we also get to understand a little bit more about the problems or the challenges of the customer, about what needs to be done in order to move forward successfully. And then, you know, we can create a roadmap for how we might move forward. And this roadmap might consist of us doing the work for you. Or it might be a blend where we do some of the work and we enable you as the customer to do Mm -hmm. the rest. The question is, you know, what's the speed the customer wants to move with? And, you know, what's the appetite for doing it themselves? But the ultimate goal of every engagement is to reach a stage where we've basically set up the tools, we've created the necessary foundation, all the building blocks and elements that we need for success. And then the customer themselves are able to pick up and run with it and then take it to the next level and, and, you know, use that tool effectively to move forward or those tools to move forward. Did I understand right that you're not replacing the tools they're using? You're basically enhancing them with your tool? Or how do I understand that? Sure. So typically what we're trying to do is we're, we try and... So what we see very often is that many customers have a partial solution around test automation. They typically have, for example, Jira as the task management system, you know, and there's a large body of information there around this. Very often they use a, a, an extension to Jira such as X-Ray or Zephyr for test management. 
then typically there's tools like Jenkins for orchestration and so forth, you know, or there's other build tools, right? And then we have a kind of a very heterogeneous test automation landscape, shall we say. In the first instance, what we're trying to do is we're trying to improve or supplement the, that test automation. Another very typical anti-pattern that we have is that we have, so it's not just that, so we have this kind of phased approach where we have first the design phase, then the development phase, then the testing phase. Mm. And once the, the software has been stabilized, then we have the test automation phase. Now, the problem with this is that, first of all, it leads to a silo mentality. So that's the opposite of being collaborative. And the second thing is if the test has been done at the end, they're the most expensive, they're the most fragile, and they have the, the least value. What we're trying to do, actually, is not just replace the tool sets, but change the entire process and do the so-called shift left, right? So we want to push the testing to the start of the process, right? So instead of having testing coming at the end, we want the tests to be done before the development starts. Mm. And in fact, we want these tests to be not just used as tests, but also to be used as the specification. So this is this kind of behavior-driven development or living specification or living document concept, right? Yeah. Now. And from an innovation perspective, now this is where it starts to get really interesting. Because now, instead of having to wait, if we do this, now we have tests. These tests will, of course, run red until they run green. But first of all, those tests have to be developed in collaboration. We have to force a dialogue between the developers, the testers, the business analysts, and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. So first of all, the very core of this is collaboration rather than automation. And this is a huge step forward in terms of innovation and, and moving things forward. The second thing is now we've got this feedback mechanism, which can provide an instantaneous feedback. We don't have to wait until the development's finished and then the testing's finished yeah, before yeah. the test automation starts. We have these tools which can iterate through as many times as we like. So now what this means is that the decision makers in the team, in the first instance, that will be the developer or the, or the tester, or and then eventually to the, the PO and the business analysts or whatever, they get instantaneous feedback. Yeah. Now, you as the platform owner, you don't have to have to ask what's the status of the development. You can see it immediately. You can make a decision about whether you move forward with the current status or whether you wait, right? Mm -hmm. And this therefore means that instead of having to bet big and plan a large chunk of functionality, we can have small micro increments. And once we are sure that the system is stable and we can push that out the door and we can get concrete feedback, you know? And what this brings is, this is the difference between having like a, a you know these long-term fixed goals where you're you know you're kind of working in the dark before you really know where you are to having this kind of really super iterative super agile approach to implementing the innovation and in the end this is the so-called pointy end of the stick you know this is where you're taking you know, this, the the concepts that you've got you're implementing them in, in, a, in a system and then you're getting it out the door to the customers right and if you can do this right you change the relationship between the system and the, the business completely, right? Yeah. The dialogue changes immensely. And this is for me, this whole innovation, right? This implementation of ideas in a fast and an agile way. And this is something that applies the whole way through from startups through large enterprises, right? You know, it's, it's possible to implement these changes the whole way through. That's what I love. For me, it's so clear but you know better than me specifically in the IT world that it's not the norm. It's no. not It's not everyone is doing it. And it's the same when I'm supporting large corporations in a completely different field, which is not connected to IT or digitalization, nothing. It's still the same. If you want to build a new product, you should be testing it before you build the product. 
to know if it's resonating with your customers. It's the same way of thinking. So you need to build up a test. I always say an experimentation phase or an experimentation space where you basically understand all the nitty gritty details. Does it need to be blue or yellow or, or green or whatever before you build the product in itself? And that's sure. for, for me, it's so logic, but it's not logic. It's not normal. So how, how, how do you see that with, and maybe as well, the difference between large corporations, really huge companies to smaller companies. And, and let's not go into startup space, more into, let's say, mid-sized companies, 50 plus employees. So what, what do you see the difference of approaches and the biggest, let's say, mistakes or pitfalls they have? I think fundamentally, or the, rather the first fundamental point is that it's it's moving from a project mindset to a product mindset. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? A project is basically a, a finite time. It's a fixed focus. You know, you do the project, then you move on to the next project, right? Mm-hmm. So fundamentally, you've got the start and this end concept in mind, right? So if we move to a product mindset, we move into this kind of infinity loop, you know, the DevOps infinity loop, where we have this constant feedback process, you know, design, develop, test, feedback, you know, new requirement, Mm -hmm. changing. Mm -hmm. It's this constantly evolving thing. So this is the first really important mindset thing that you've got to to overcome. And and what that means then is that it's, to think about this, you've also got to try and change this mindset away from these larger deliveries, you know? So, planning like two releases per year, for example. If you plan something with two releases per year, that means you have six months time frame for each release. Mm-hmm. Or let's say three releases per year. So it's very typical, you know, three, three major releases per year. You know, this is what we see a lot on, on large enterprises. At the start of the year, you're planning for your first release, right? And this is, again, this kind of design, then develop, then test kind of mentality, yeah. right? So you yeah. design and you fill up the backlog and you estimate how long everything's going to take. And pretty long, it doesn't take very long before your first release is completely full. So you start planning for the second release. You know, you're starting to push, uh, develop uh, features into there. And again, everything gets full, right? So now you push the third, you're planning at the start of the year for features at the end of the 12 months, right? You know, mm-hmm. now this might be fine if you're building a bridge, but if you're building software products, it's completely the wrong attitude, right? Because you don't know if the assumptions that you make at that first of those 12-month period are correct. What always happens, of course, is things take much longer than you expect. The 10 features that you planned for sprint one, you only get through seven of them. So you yeah. push those other ones into the next sprint. And then you find out actually you missed something, right? So you've got to push it in. You've got to inject it in, you know? So you're constantly dealing with a moving target. So the point, therefore, is if you've got this constant uncertainty, you've got to build this into your processes. And the only way that you can do this in a, in a meaningful way is to change that release cycle or that frequency of release to a, to a much smaller cycle. And then it's not just around the IT processes, you know, the mm-hmm. software. it's also about the feedback from the market. It's the dialogue with the customers, with the marketing, you know, it's changing that changing this from this big bang approach to this small incremental constant feedback loops, right? And the point therefore is the tighter those feedback loops, the more information that you get, the better informed you will be and the better able you will be to make a decision to take that new information and to correct or to steer or to make a better decision, which will result therefore in the long term in a better solution. This is fundamentally the mindset stuff that has to change, right? Now, that's a big picture thing, and that takes a lot of getting used to. But what can start straight away is this moving away from doing things manually and focusing on automating. 
So that's basically our game. You know, yeah. it's automation and integration of all of these parts together. And in my opinion, anything that you have to do more than once is a good candidate for test uh, for automation, right? Straight up. <laughs> because, yeah. I mean, inherently, I'm an inherently lazy person, right? I don't want to waste my time doing the same, working hard. I want to automate that away so that I have then the benefits rather than having to go through the whole work, right? Mm. And so the recipe for automation is very simple. It's more expensive to set up, but you win back the investment on the execution, right? Mm. So once you have the automation in place, you want to be running this all the time. You want to be expanding the use cases, the way that you can use that framework, right? And so what happens is if you start to, to adapt this kind of automated First of all, you can have a lot more security and a lot more confidence that the code's going through. It also means you can do it faster. So you don't have to wait two weeks to go through a manual test cycle because you can press a button and 30 minutes later it's done or 10 minutes later or five minutes later. This is then, the again, this is the extreme part of this big chunking. So instead of having to chunk things into two-week or one-week increments, you can start to do three hours or half an hour, an hour or half an hour. And if you can get a feedback in five minutes, why can't you just do a small change, press commit, and get the feedback that everything's good or not? And so this is then the shift left plus the shift right mindset. If we dive back into large corporations, so if that's not the case, How difficult is, if they're still on a project mindset, you're asked to help them. Are you touching that first to say, hey, so, we need to change that? Or how do you do that? Sure. So like I said uh, in the first instance, we've got to move from a talking about to a showing, right? We've got, to, we've got to start doing the showing as quickly as possible. So improving the test automation can start at any time, right? We can start on day one improving uh, improving the automation concepts. One of the important things to say is that manual tests are not necessarily the same as automated tests. Test automation fundamentally changes the way that you go through this feedback mechanism, the, the way that you do it, you know? What you typically see is that you have these complicated business, these use cases, which are walkthroughs from a business perspective, you know, how a person would, would go through the system. And they have maybe 20 or 30 or 50 steps, you know, as you go through one of these complicated workflows and everything yeah. like this. Now, that might be very intuitive for a person, but what it makes much more sense is to decompose that into much smaller pieces where we have these very small, very targeted test cases, which allow us to validate points super fast, right? Yeah. Now, I would much rather take one of those 50-step test cases and break it down into 10 or 20 smaller test cases where I can parallelize it so the execution happens simultaneously anyway so mm. the execution costs go to zero and then i have a very concrete feedback about each step so there's lots of different design patterns that we can use you know where we have functional tests where we have layout tests where we have like screenplays you know where we have user flows these are things which allow us to get a kind of a quick win which we can start to work on and then as we're doing this what happens is we build up a building a library of building blocks or reusable blocks that we can that we can start to use, you know, which therefore enables the team to do the testing or to create these test cases in a, in a faster way. And then we can slowly start to shift left, yeah. shift towards that specification by example kind of mindset. We're now very deep, and I love that. To, to simplify that for people who are not so deep into this topic, can you give an example on, on a software everyone understands and how would you do that? Let's just... Take a website, right? And let's just imagine this website has some basic authentication, right? We go to uh, Jens's website, which is Jens is awesome. And in order for us to log in, we've got to use 
just standard basic authentication, right? Which means a username and a password, right? That means before we do any of the other fancy stuff on your website, you know, we've got to log in. So now we've got to navigate to the website. We've got to give the username. We've got to give the password. We've got to give go, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of like the gatekeeper for all the rest of the fancy functionality. Now, yeah. maybe it's it's simple. Maybe it's more complicated. Maybe there's some two-factor authentication or whatever. You know, the point is the first time we do this, we've got to discover how that's all set up and how that's all being done. And, you know, that might might involve a navigate step and a set password, set username, click on it, and then some kind of validation to make sure that we're done. So there's four or five steps that we have to do at least, right? Yeah. But every single time I'm coming to that website, I've got to go through this login. So I don't want to have to recreate that wheel every single time, yeah. you know? So I create a building block, which I can now reuse, right? And now... Now I don't have to think about this anymore. I just say log into Jens's site. Everything's cool, right? Mm -hmm. And then we go to the next challenge, you know. And then we we you know we start to uncover these chunks of functionality which which are always the same, mm -hmm. and they're very consistent. And we start to build up a better understanding. Now the first test is going to be a pain in the ass because everything is new. But the second test, I've already got the login, you know. Yeah. yeah. And then maybe now I've also got to create the new account as well, you know. And then the third test. I've already got, you know, three or four different pieces which I can already reuse, right? And so after the 10th test or the 20th test or the 50th test, you know, now I'm, I've got 85, 90, 95% of the elements I've already got in my hand. Yeah. And, and now everything starts to become easier and faster. And, and this is the, the value of having this kind of systematic test automation at scale mindset, right? Because there is hard work at the start, you know, the, the cost is front loaded, but once you've gone through that process, then it becomes a lot faster and more effective. And then you can start to have all these benefits from a big picture perspective. You know, we have this right down at the functional level, at the, at the lowest level of the component, you know, and the features of that component, right? Mm -hmm. But we can start to aggregate all of that information and start to roll it up. And, and a usually a complex system, you know, there's two or three different, there's a front end, there's a back end, there's a database, there's different microservices. Mm -hmm. And now we can start to compare values from each of these different systems and we can roll it up a level. And now as the platform owner, I can come into a single place where I can see this whole view, you know, I can see the health of my system in a comparable way. And you can keep on rolling this up. Another exercise that I like to do is kind of a value stream mapping, where we think about the whole value stream of an organization can be inside a department, or it could be across the entire, uh, the entire value stream. For example, let's say at the end of the value stream in a car manufacturer is the after sales department, right? Yeah. So we go through this process of creating the vehicle, selling the vehicle. Now we've sold it. Now we've got to maintain this. You know, there's a kind of a workflow that you go through. There's a whole lot of business processes. And then underneath that, there's a whole lot of corresponding IT systems. Yeah. And the health of those business processes is dependent on the health of those systems that lie underneath this. Yeah. So we want to build a layer or, you know, an abstraction layer across those different applications so that we can start to roll that up so we can see where we are. You know, and ultimately, I want to see what's the status of that entire business unit. And then I want to see what's the status of my entire value stream. And we can continue rolling this up until we have some kind of apex where we have a, a you know, a dashboard which gives us an overview of the entire system. And that in the end is the end goal, right? That now the decision makers at that organization, whether it's with 50 people or a thousand people or 10, 10 or 20 or whatever thousand 
people that might be there. You, you have a consistent view of your entire system, which you can drill into as required. This kind of insight and overview has tremendous value, first of all, to the, for the operations perspective, but secondly, from an innovation perspective, because now you can see very concretely and very quickly, you know, what's the impact of any kind of change to the system. Yeah, 100%. That's what, what before you said it, I, wa I wanted to say it as well. Be, like, it's, I always talk about you need to have a, an innovation GPS, which gives you exactly the numbers you, you need to understand to be able to take decisions. And that's exactly sure. what you just explained. It's, it's sure. so crucial and it's, it's so rarely that companies have that. So my experiences as well, so here's the risk that you have with agile teams. You know, you have this, you know, this, the team will self-organize and they will do it in a different way. And now all of a sudden you're comparing apples over here with pears over here, yeah. you know? And how do you, from a, from a large scale perspective, how do you handle this? I'm a massive fan of agile and self-organization, mm -hmm. but there's a difference between self-organizing and self-governing. There's a very big difference. So the governance comes from the top down. Right. There are rules of engagement. For example, actually, this is one of the criticisms that's been leveled at the whole agile and the scrum scrum movement. So at the very start of the, the scrum manifesto, you know, when the, the original agile manifesto was signed, you know, these scrum concepts were, just, were, were treated as like a toolbox where you, you, would, you didn't have to do all of these things. You know, there were some best practices that you should pull from, but anyone should everyone should have kind of evolved these practices. Mm -hmm. Now, Mike Cohn, one of the original guys of the Agile Manifesto, said that was one of the biggest mistakes that they did when they were pushing Scrum and Agile concepts out the door right at the start was that they didn't say that test automation and continuous integration, they said these are very good ideas, but you don't necessarily need to have them. Yeah. This was one of the big problems that they had. Actually, these things are mandatory, right? There is no question about it, right? If you want to have an agile software development processes, you know, you need to have continuous integration and configuration and management and test automation and so on and so forth, right? There's no, no compromise on these yeah. points, right? Yeah. These are the kind of things that which need to be dictated from the top down, right? Which means that you, there needs to be a coherent solution from this. Now, how that gets implemented is a different thing, right? But on the other hand, I also, as the platform owner, want to know that the KPIs that I've got, so even though we're apples and pears over here, they're still fruit trees. They're still fundamentally the same thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I want to know what's the health of this fruit tree over here compared to the health of this fruit tree over here. And where do I, as the platform owner, focus my attention on improving the system? And this is a very necessary thing, for sure. Love that. Would like to get into the last part of, of the interview and talk where I always have a couple of questions that are slightly not related to what we have talked right now. So if, if you could work with a project that is that is basically experience touched for and, and with like every human being on earth. So something that's like impacting everyone on the whole earth. What project would it be and why why do you choose it? So I'm a massive believer of this kind of agile mentality, right? And what the what's part of the agile mentality is this constant reflection, constant learning, and constant improvement mm -hmm. thing. So, so what I would like to give to the world then is this ability to reflect, you know, to think about a different way, to have this kind of lifelong learning concept. And, and that's another passion of mine is, is around redefining this whole education structure. And, and there's an extremely interesting concept called Learn Life which is about redefining this education system. 
and I'm happy to drop some uh, some references into the into the the podcast notes for this yeah. later on. Yeah. But the point is to give this as a gift to the world, right? That we can redefine this concept of what that means to learn, you know, and and not think of it as a as a project. You you go to school for a certain period of your life. You have primary school. You have secondary school. You go to university or whatever, yeah. but instead thinking of it as a, you are the product, right? This is a lifelong learning thing where you can redefine how you learn and, you know, you can take this incremental process, you can have the feedback loops, you know, this is not just a, a gift that's, that would be a luxury. This is a gift that's a necessity as society changes, right? As the rules of our uh, working environment change, you know, as we have more artificial intelligence, as we have more competition from this kind of worldwide global landscape and so yeah. forth. You know? yeah. So Love. this is a super interesting topic. And if there was one thing that I could really do, this would be it for sure. That's a really cool one. So looking forward, we're now in early 2021, still all in lockdown. Where do you see yourself in a year from now? So we've set ourselves some fairly aggressive goals. So first of all, from a testify perspective, we've gone through a very big growth phase. We've got from six people in 2019 to 30 people now. We want to, we've got some aggressive growth goals, which we need to push out. So hopefully we'll be achieving them, you know, which will be pushing us. We're around 1 million revenue at the moment, and we need to get to around 3.5 to 5 million by the end of this year. So that would be my first goal, right? Yeah. If we're going to do that, then that's going to mean that the size of testify will at least double. So we'll be talking at least 60 people. And hopefully that will mean that I can sleep a little bit easier at night, not having to worry about where all the money is coming from. That, that would be nice. That's helpful, yeah. <laughs> because I can tell you there's been a lot of uh, lost nights of sleep at the start since the start of this year, just uh, about how it all moves forward and everything. The next question is, how do you keep yourself informed? So what are the different sources today's, in today's world where you get information from, where you get, get your knowledge from? I read a lot, first of all. I, I like reading because reading is kind of a long form of uh, a study, you know. So there's a lot of different sources of information, you know. A lot of what we get informed about is, let's say, short form. For example, this podcast is a short form, you know, dialogue, you know, which doesn't require deep preparation and so forth. Whereas if you're going to write a book, this requires some considerable effort and so forth. Now, there are books which become quickly out of date, right? Which means you have to be careful how you select the information that you've got. So typically I like to read broadly and deeply. Broadly meaning lots of different concepts and, you know, diving into the topics with depth. I find this is useful because there are underlining themes and concepts which are quickly, you can quickly start to draw out of the books, you know. Okay. This then gives me, uh, let's say, an informed basis for which, or, or lens for which to view other podcasts or other material that I might have. And then I have to say, there's a point in time where you've got to go from having an open funnel to having a closed funnel, right? And so um, I find myself going through these times with intense productivity where I've just got to focus on, on moving forward with what I've got, closing the funnel and focus concretely on taking those concepts and implementing them. So when I'm opening the funnel, I Coming back to, you know, what, what are some of the sources of inspiration? We mentioned this before. You know, one of my favorite podcasts is Joe Rogan, you know, because he's just so widely spoken. Mm. I like guys like Sam Harris, Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, because they're just so broad in their thinking. I have much more concrete thought leaders, which I also like to go to. For example, one of my favorite authors on, on habits is James Clear. 
he's wrote this book called Atomic Habits, which is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a couple of favorite authors uh, in the in the, the agile space. I've also joined with forums and I'm a member of a couple of uh, networking forums like the Entrepreneur Organization and the Argonauts, which also give me exposure to a lot of different people with different mindsets. Just generally speaking, you know, it's this combination between this open funnel and this closed funnel, really. Yeah, so. I like how you explain it. So, so you have a base layer, which is basically like the books and the long form, and then you you stack up with, with the more shorter form of, of content and so on. It's quite interesting to see it like that. <laughs> Anything we have missed to talk about? I'm sure there's lots of topics, you know. There's lots of things about habits and, and you know, building systems and focusing on this kind of uh, consistent delivery. Like I say, James Clear is one of my favorite guys on this one. And indeed, these are some of the values that I've got in the company as well, you know, about, I, I call it freedom through discipline. Yeah. And the point here is that, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. There's no way you can build a city in one day, but they were laying bricks every day, every hour, right? From the end, they were relentlessly building these things, you know? And it was the system of building roads and creating buildings and so forth, this engineering concept. That was the value of the, of the system uh, that, that, that they had, right? Rome was the product. Rome was the outcome, but not the value. The system was the value, right? And this for me is one of the most important things when I think about, you know, how to create value is to focus on creating a system which generates that value the value that comes out the end is then the, is the byproduct of the system basically this is a, a super important point and then you know to anyone who's thinking about innovation and entrepreneurship the related point is that people massively overestimate what's possible in the short term be that an hour a week a month six months right but they massively and consistently underestimate what's possible in the long term with a coherent goal and clear focus right so you know what's possible in 10 years is staggering right but you have to be laying bricks every hour right every day yeah. all the time and it has to be focused in the right direction and you know this is for me the most important message or learning that i would give anyone if they are focusing on creating some kind of value around innovation or entrepreneurship or entrepreneurship even. that's a perfect way of ending the podcast for today dan sure. thank you very much for your time and being with me it was awesome to do have you on the show it was really a pleasure and anytime for sure thank you very much thanks hey this is jens again thank you very much for listening to today's episode if you like what you have listened to please subscribe to the podcast and share the episodes with your friends and people you think might like it too. If you want to know more about what I'm up to, please follow me on social media or look me up at jensheitland.com. Thank you very much and see you in the next episode.